This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson, and on tonight's show we have Stephen Scheel, director of the forthcoming Dead Mine. Walking down this railroad track, I got tears in my eyes. Since he burst onto the British horror scene in 2009 with Mum and Dad, a slyly subversive study of a monstrous family living on the outskirts of an airport, Stephen Scheel has quickly established himself as a major voice in darkly satirical British horror. With his second feature, Dead Mine, an action horror set in Southeast Asia, due for release early next year, I spoke to Stephen about his influences in British horror. Based in Nottingham, Stephen is also co-founder of the Mayhem Horror Film Festival, where Dead Mine gets its UK premiere this October. Okay, so you've actually managed to carve carve out a place for yourself in the British horror scene fairly rapidly in the last two or three years. Um, do you think of yourself primarily as a genre filmmaker, uh, but being based in Nottingham, do you, or do you think of yourself as a regional filmmaker or a bit of both? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess I've always... Um not always, but but I tend to think of myself as a genre filmmaker because um, I, I mean, the films I've made so far have been horror or kind of horror related. But I'm also into kind of you know sci-fi stuff. I'm into crime stuff. I'm into pulp kind of stuff. Really, I you know I I enjoy horror films. I enjoy you know exploitation films. I enjoy pulp novels and comics. You know, and it's all kind of genre based. All of my interests really. Um, I do. I guess I do think of myself as, as a kind of, in one sense, I think of myself as a regional filmmaker because my whole career in in making films, I've been based in Nottingham, um, and there's a really strong scene there. So I think of myself as a Nottingham filmmaker. There are a lot of people making films in the region, particularly in Nottingham, and there has been over the past kind of uh, ten years or so. Um, so I do kind of identify strongly with that. I mean, having said that, the 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 two features I've made so far have been, you know, set in London and Indonesia. So I haven't actually <laughs> made a film that's been been set in Nottingham yet. So, you know, I'm a kind of weird kind of regional filmmaker who doesn't actually shoot films in the region. Well, you're not actually a, a Nottingham-born lad, are you? Um, no, no, no I, I, I grew up in um, uh, in London, actually, kind of in the, in the shadow of Heathrow Airport, which is kind of uh, explains the, the the kind of location and setting for Mum and Dad, because that that's kind of where I grew up. Is that that kind of you know West London, uh, the part that you kind of, kind of so rarely see on on screen. Really, I think uh, usually when people arrive at Heathrow Airport, there's a there's a kind of cut, and then they're in a taxi in the West End, and and that's it. You don't kind of get to see that <laughs> interland between, you know, that, that weird kind of journey from, from Heathrow into London. Sure. So what actually prompted the move to Nottingham after you went to university? Uh, you went to Nottingham and got involved 
in Intermedia, didn't you? I uh, did, yeah. And the, the East Midlands Media Initiative and, and, and learned filmmaking and video making with them. So what prompted that move? Um, <laughs> to, be, to be perfectly honest, I left university and I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to avoid getting a job. Um, so <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't afford to either live in Canterbury, which is where I went to university, or live in London. And a friend of mine was at art college in Nottingham, and he said he had a spare room in his house. So I moved up to Nottingham and then just basically started writing. Um, started writing and started kind of doing temp jobs and uh, and just kind of doing anything I could to get by all the while. I mean, at that point, it wasn't film, actually. It was it was short stories. I was, um, you know, writing a lot of uh, short stories and just trying to get better at doing that. Um, and then after a few years of being in Nottingham and, and hanging around with people who were working... Um, or making art and doing fine art especially um, a friend of mine had started working at Intermedia um, based, which was in Nottingham which is a kind of uh, facilities house a resource centre um, uh, it, it was you know it was a great place um, to meet people who were making films he started volunteering there um, and I just started getting interested in what he was doing and and you know, we started kind of talking about, he knew that I was a writer, so he said, oh, you know, why don't you try writing a script? So I did, and we made a short film together, and it kind of, um, and my interest kind of grew from there, really. And then I got into a course um, called Head Start, which Intermedia used to run, and that was a year-long course in uh, a kind of foundation in uh, filmmaking, and it was brilliant. You, you, you know, it was full-time, five days a week, and uh, you got, paid for doing it which is kind of a miracle in those days um, you had to be on the dole to kind of uh, get up to it um, but it gave us a real kind of foundation we had a fantastic tutor called Roger Not Fail that was really it you know once I, I kind of I, I did that course that's when I really kind of um, started moving much more towards filmmaking um, and combining the the interest I had in writing with the interest in actually filmmaking and directing well it was a good time wasn't it to get involved in filmmaking because it was the emergence of DV, wasn't it? With talking about the late 1990s. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 you got involved. I mean, you started to make your own DV uh, shorts, didn't you? And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think in yeah, there was that period when DV came out, and um, I think Nottingham. I mean, from the inside, it, you know, things just happened organically. From the outside, when I talked to other people from other cities, I realised that Nottingham was actually kind of quite unique in the way that it, it really embraced DV technology. Um, and it's got a very much, or it had very much, a, a kind of DIY approach to filmmaking in Nottingham anyway, because there, there, never, there never has really been a film school there. So anybody who, who was making films um, in the region was just doing it by, you know, borrowing equipment. Um, you know, one of the reasons why people volunteered to work at Intermedia was because uh, for all the time that they spent volunteering, uh, they could get a go on the equipment. I mean, at that you know at that stage, it was it was kind of high eight you know high eight cameras and beta beta SP cameras and stuff like that. Um, when DV came in, it was a re- you know and suddenly there were these affordable cameras and light cameras that you could kind of run around with. Um, it really changed things, and a lot of people in Nottingham really embraced it. And there was a real kind of um, developed uh, developing scene. You know, a lot of us started working with each other and for each other and you know I would do camera for someone you know on their short film he would do camera for, for me on my short film and you know so there was a whole kind of bunch of us who were all kind of working together and all kind of 
you know, making our own films, but using each other as a kind of uh, crew resource. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was a really kind of, you know, it was a really kind of exciting time. And obviously, you know, it, <clears throat> that whole period was when, you know, Shane Meadows kind of first kind of came on the scene and, yeah, he was someone who had worked at, you know, volunteered at Intermedia as well, and that's how he'd made his first kind of few shorts. So, you know, seeing him as someone who had um, been through that kind of process and, and was then, you know, making feature films, you know, it it gave you the kind of, you know, the, the kind of alternate route. Do you know what I mean? Right, rather than going yeah. to film school and thinking, well, that's the only way that I'm going to get into into making feature films. You could look at someone like Shane and think, well, actually, there is another route. You know, you make your own short films, and and Shane was really kind of prolific in making short films and working with a whole kind of group of you know really good uh, actors, young actors in Nottingham to kind of improvise scripts and come up with stories. It was very much kind of DIY approach, and it and like I said, it kind of gave. Um, you know, gave you the kind of idea that there was another way to get into the industry. Well, one of the filmmakers that you work with who you haven't mentioned yet was Chris Cook, wasn't it? Who made, yeah. he made the, that great DV feature, which was One for the Road, and uh, another good short film, Shifting Units, which I think was a, one of the BFI shorts. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. Well, Chris, I mean, I've known Chris for you know, 15 years and, and we did the course together, the Head Start course. We, that's, you know, uh, we both did that in, in the same year. And Chris was one of those people, like I said, who, you know, who I've worked with from the beginning, really. And I was one of the cameramen on uh, Shifting Units and One for the Road. You know, he was doing camera on my shorts at the same time. So, you know, we've had this kind of, you know, relationship of kind of working together. Uh, for for years and and yeah one for the road I, I mean again that was another kind of um you know good example of someone who you know chris always really used dv technology and he really kind of exploited the the, the fact that you know you could you could shoot for hours and hours um on the on these tiny tapes i mean chris is very much into into improvisation and would get a group of actors in and, and would improvise scenes and um you know, we'd use natural lighting and you know, he he gave camera operators a real freedom just to kind of follow the action wherever, you know, wherever it went. Um, so again, you know, Chris making shorts, Chris made two or three shorts and then got the opportunity to develop one short, shifting units into a feature. Um, and, and again, seeing that happen, you know, in Nottingham, seeing somebody else who was there making a feature film in Nottingham, they hadn't had to go down to London and make it. He was, he was there, you know, shooting, round the corner from sort of where you lived it was you know again that's another kind of inspiration there's another um uh potential route into getting getting to make feature films well well those films have very strong elements of sort of social satire don't they even black comedy yeah absolutely. Uh, is that something that drew you to working with chris as well yeah i think we've got i mean yeah i think we've got a similar kind of shared sensibility um and I think, I mean, we've both got different styles in terms of in terms of filmmaking, and you know, obviously, we work in kind of different different genres. I mean, I, but I think, <laughs> I mean, Chris is, you know, I mean, Chris's films are very kind of very dark and and you know, very dark comedies, very black kind of comedies, and uh, I think we've got a similar kind of uh, similar sense of humour, a similar kind of sensibility, and also, you know, Chris is a massive horror film fan. I mean, yeah, he's 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 more of a kind of horror film geek than I am. 
so yeah, we have that in common as well. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I love what Chris was doing, you know, with those films and the kind of uh, sort of you know unflinching kind of approach to to to, to, to the subject matter that that he had, while still keeping to you know really strong kind of elements of humour. I also wondered because I noticed that you you studied German when you were at university. I yeah. wondered if you'd been in, influenced at all by the new German cinema of the 1970s, you know, the Wim Wenders and Herzog and Fassbender, that sort of director. Yeah, I wouldn't say I was influenced by that. I mean, I, you know, I, I, obviously I know all of those directors, and that, but I think, you know, the, I did, you know, I, I did kind of uh, study German, but it was, it was, you know, I was studying kind of, you know, Goethe and Schiller and, and, and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we you know, very rarely got, you know, you know, got the opportunity to study, study anything more kind of contemporary. Um, so yeah, that wasn't. I wouldn't really count that as a kind of uh, as a kind of big influence on me. No. But Pete Walker was, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for for mum and dad, he, he was. Yeah. I mean, I. And again, this is something probably going back to you know working with Chris. I think you know me and Chris had often had kind of conversations about um, uh, British exploitation films from from that era. Uh, and see how kind of grim and grubby and kind of unsexy they are. You know, like the Confessions films or the Adventures films, that everything just seems, I don't know whether it's because of the era or just because of the, the way it's shot, but everything just seems like grim and, 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 and grubby and depressing. And it feels more a lot more real than um, the kind of mainstream cinema that you were seeing from, uh, you know, from that time. It's got a, more of a kind of real reflection of, of uh, you know how Britain was at the time, um, so I and I kind of uh, when I saw the films of uh, Pete Walker, especially Frightmare, I guess um, I really liked that kind of low budget, slightly grubby kind of feel uh, feel to them, and uh, so yeah, they, they they kind of fed into what became Mum and Dad, I guess. Well, it's interesting because filmmakers like yourself have kind of taken that griminess and made it into an aesthetic and but, but Pete Walker's actually quite apologetic about it in, yeah, in, a, way, yeah. in a way he sort of apologises that he sees the griminess arising from sort of deficiencies within the budget and not having enough time etc and it, for him it wasn't maybe a conscious or a deliberate thing to do yeah. No, no, no! I really appreciate that, and I'm sure that you know, you know, he, he would love to have had a bigger budget and and you know, and better sets and you know, you know, in some cases, better actors. I'm sure. Um, yeah, no, no, I fully appreciate that. I think, um, but like I say, I think it's it's, it's more that that I guess those films had did have a kind of aesthetic, and it was, uh, and to me, it was a kind of a you know a, a kind of appealing aesthetic because it it seemed very kind of. British and quite kind of and quite real in a way and quite kind of I like that kind of I like that grubbiness and I like that kind of it gave an edge to things I think um, that that I really like they kind of sum up the time very well don't they that sort of early 1970s three-day week yeah <laughs> uh, you know no, everyone's yeah. out on strike and yeah. the, the bodies are sort of piling up at the side yeah. of the road because you know the, uh, the 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 cemetery staff are out on strike as well. You know, one of my favourite. I mean, it's not horror, but one of my favourite films from that era is the um, the Slade film in 
uh, Flame, which yeah. uh, is, is amazing. I mean, if you watch that, that's kind of... I mean, it's set slightly earlier, but it's filmed in the early 70s. And it's, uh, I think every single scene has got, like, an, an overflowing bin in it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> there's, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a fantastic scene where one of the guys goes down to a, a canal near Birmingham where he says he used to swim, and, you know... While he was swimming in there, the turds used to fl- float past like canal barges. Uh, such a kind of horrific, horrifically kind of grim image. But um, but yeah, so yeah, I don't I don't know why it is, but you know that kind of stuff. You know that kind of uh, I guess grim kind of realism kind of appeal to me, and it appeals to Chris as well. I think we just like that kind of you know. <clears throat> there's something about the. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, with Pete Walker's films, it was kind of a necessity of the budget that, that things look that cheap. I think, you know, for, for both me and, me and Chris, I mean, we, you know, when we're making our films, we're working at the kind of lower, lower budget end of things. And, and, and maybe that's the thing. It's just like looking at an aesthetic that, that you think ties into, you know, what, what, what you can do. Yes, as you say, it's, there's a sort of practicality to it, but it also feels very relevant, doesn't it? But yeah. I, I know that another influence on Mum and Dad was uh, Freddie Francis's film, wasn't it? Mumsy, Nanny, Sonny and Girly. Well, one of the things with, with, um, with Mum and Dad was that um, when I was first kind of conceiving it, I was uh, looking at... Um, I suppose I was thinking that, you know, in terms of making a low-budget horror film, there are, you know, there are certain kind of horror tropes. And, and one that you get in America a lot is this, this kind of idea of the kind of... <laughs> The kind of fucked up family film, you know, the the you know the the, the family of cannibals or the family of mutants, um, the family of psychopaths, and you get a lot of American versions of, of that story, but not very many British ones. Um, and when I started kind of looking, there, there were only a few that I could find really, and you know, Frightmare was one of them, and uh, Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Girly was was another one. I mean, in both those cases, they're not. Um, they're not, you know, they're, they're more kind of middle class kind of families uh, rather than the kind of working class family that, that we had in Mum and Dad. But for some reason, I don't, I don't know why it is, but I, I just like that idea of the kind of the, the, the messed up family. And, and, you know, both of those films have those, you know, have those twisted families with twisted family values. Yeah, often the, the family's kind of threatened by an outsider who kind of threatens some form of social change that... Um is going to kind of tear the family apart or, yeah, uh, or move them away from their sort of traditions. Yeah. Um, I mean, in Francis's film, it's very much of its time in 1970. It's a sort of... The, they, they, they pick up hippies, don't they, and drifters. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they kind of threaten the family structure. But in your film, it seems to kind of draw on more contemporary fears of sort of mass immigration and a sort of a challenge to sort of British identity... Yeah, I, I mean, it it does. I mean, when I was I was kind of conceiving of the family, I suppose I I kind of thought of them as kind of working class Tory family, I guess that yeah. you know, would have this. It would be you know that would that would read the Sun and and believe all the kind of stories about kind of immigrants coming over and taking the jobs and you know and uh, one of the kind of inspirations for the the family was. Um, this Margaret Thatcher quote about, you know, there's no such thing as society, there are only individuals and families. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, just you as an individual or you as a family and just say, okay, 
that's all we're concerned with, you know, then, you know, if you can set your own kind of set of rules, if you, you know, your own kind of set of ethics, your own set of morals, you know, it's really dangerous ground to, to, to kind of be on, you know, especially if those, you know, uh, you know, especially if that worldview is, is very, very twisted. And so that's, that's kind of how I thought of the family in, in mum and dad as, as having that very kind of twisted worldview that, that came from this idea that they, you know, they were kind of an island. You know, the, the, the house in mum and dad is, is, you know, is kind of set apart from, from, from everywhere else. I mean, you don't get a, a real good, you know, look at the exterior of the house. But in my head, it's based on a house that was near, um, near where I grew up, which was this house that stood alone next to a field in between three roads, you know, in the shadow of the airport. I and mean, it was just like this little kind of island there. And I think there's a real kind of danger to that, that idea of divorcing yourself from society and just setting up your own your own set of rules no absolutely uh, i couldn't agree more um and it's i think how how you see the sort of rises of the joseph fritzels of this world and the fred west of this world isn't absolutely. it yeah absolutely it's it's, it's it's the way that yeah i mean that you know obviously <clears throat> i mean the fritzel case actually only came to light while we were shooting mum and dad <laughs> but obviously the, the the fred and rose west thing was something that that had been you know um, been in the news a few years previously, and and there's always this kind of idea: of how could it happen? How you know, how you know, what kind of people could do this? And and I'm kind of interested in in how people develop the psychology to be able to do that kind of those you know horrendous kind of things. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in those kind of twisted and uh, you know damaged kind of states of mind in a way and. And so for mum and dad, I really wanted to kind of have a look at that kind of psychology. And like I said, it was just this kind of idea that there was this family here that just just set themselves up and, and they, they normalised everything. It was just like, you know, in my house, my rules. You know, it's, you know, obviously that's a kind of, you know, a joke about, you know, things that parents say. But it's also a kind of real truth about, well, you know, you don't know what goes on behind the doors of, other, of you know, uh, other people's houses you don't know what goes on in in, in other families and you know everybody I've you know I recently become a parent myself and the, become very aware of this thing that when you're a parent you know you have to make the rules you have to you know tell your child you know right from wrong you have to, you know it, it's up to you there's no one else you know until they go to school who's, who's going to do it and it's a it's a big kind of responsibility and it's also um a big kind of opportunity to I don't know to to you know distort somebody else's worldview because you can you know you can put your you can basically put your worldview onto them. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because mum and dad is kind of as much about what's going on outside of the house, isn't it? Which that we never see that kind of strange alienated world of an airport and mm. p- people just coming and going and never really settling as much as it is about what's going on in the house. I, th- yeah. I think in your film and a lot of films of a similar theme that deal with cannibalistic families, the cannibalism is viewed not as a sort of deviant behaviour, it's viewed as a kind of extension of normality. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, definitely with, with mum and dad, I wanted the family, you know, to see, yeah, you know, they see themselves as normal because they've normalised everything that they're doing, you know, that. And as the film kind of goes on, you, you, you kind of get to see how, um, you know, how 
abnormal their you know their, their behavior is i mean obviously from the beginning it seems abnormal but also just how the relationships are actually you know slightly more complicated than the than, than you imagine you know between the between the parents between the parents and the children between the children it's it's you know it's all more kind of complicated and more in a way more fucked up than 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 you may have initially thought yeah uh, they become almost a sort of parody of of, of a family in a way don't they they're, they're a sort of parody of family domesticity Would yeah you, the way they sort of set the rules and give each other pet names and so on well that's, uh, i mean one of the things i wanted to do with it was was that you know nobody in the film has got their real name you know they're, they're all you know there's mum, there's dad you know there's birdie and there's lb and lb was just you know it just stands for little brother you know that's that you know, yeah he, none of them have their own names and when when lena comes into the house she's she's given the name of angel it's you know, it's, it, it's like there's, you know, there aren't necessarily individuals there. There, there are roles. You know, mum will always be mum, dad will always be dad, and you know, you've got the stroppy kind of, you know, the mouthy teenage girl, and you've got the sulky teenage boy. You know, it's almost like they've they've set. There's always got to be, you know, somebody in in one of those roles for the family to work. Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean, it's so rich because mum and dad constantly spout the cliches of parentism don't they you know the sort of if you live under this roof you live by my rules yeah sort of thing uh it's almost like you kind of push the the conventions of soap opera as well in some of the scenes uh, especially around yeah. the, the sort of the dining room table as it were the kitchen table they're very kind of soapy scenes even the way they're sort of shot they, they yeah. come across as sort of satires of soap operas well, that yeah, I mean, that was one of the things. I mean, <laughs> I think it kind of. Um, I think the DOP, <laughs> the DOP Jonathan, wasn't kind of too sort of enamoured of it really because he, you know, he's like, oh god, this, you know, this is just going to look so drab. But but for me, part of it was almost a reaction against this this the idea of like the the cinematic. The you know, it, it's a thing that I kind of this term, you know, you know cinematic have been something that have been kind of banded about a lot and also coming from a background of making dv you know dv shorts and having that be a criticism that would be thrown at that by people who had you know who had worked on film or people who had you know been to film school or you know that oh no dv just looks grubby just looks like tv it's not cinematic enough and just this idea that there was a i don't know that there was there were boundaries to what could be allowed in cinema do you know what i mean that 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 you know, oh, you know, one shot or one location or one scene is cinematic, but this isn't cinematic. I thought, well, you know, the way people view uh, TV films now is, you know, they they view them on kind of you know iPhones or small screens or DVD or TV. It's it's, it's all become a bit more kind of conflated, you know? and I don't see so much a definition between something that's you know cinematic. You know, I don't know, I don't know what that means unless people think are. You know, thinking of like David Lean or something or Stanley Kubrick, is that what cinematic is? Mm. We were filming on location, so we we're filming in quite tight spaces. So, in a way, it was always going to have a slightly kind of cramped and kind of boxed in look. So, the decision was to kind of, you know, go with that. And, and, and also, that, you know, most representations you see on TV of kind of working class families are in soap operas, you know, so it, it would be a kind of reminder of that. And, you know, there were a few kind of, you know, nods. But soap operas are sitcoms, actually. So there were a few kind of nods in the film to that kind of lineage. So, for example, they've got a they've got a porcelain pig in the middle of the table, which is a kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know you've noticed this, but it's, you know I always remember watching Bread when I was growing up, the Carl <laughs> and they always had a fucking you know porcelain yeah. pig in the middle of the table that everybody put their 
And, you yeah. know, so we had a pig, you know, because it just, you know, that seemed more kind of horror filmy to have a pig. And, you know, the the way that, you know, there's a, there's a scene later on where, uh, you know, somebody gets hit in the face with an iron. And, and I remember, well, that's, you know, that's how, who was it, Little Mo killed Trevor in EastEnders. And it just seemed like, you know, and once I kind of had that idea, I thought, no, let's go, go for it. Let's not worry about where these associations are coming from. They're all, you know, they're all kind of British screen um references you know whether they're cinema or whether they're tv so i didn't kind of worry too much about that and um you know i, I didn't want to end up trying to make something that that you know you're know, trying to set it in a house that where it was all big kind of open plan so that we could get nice tracking shots around the table because it's it you know it wouldn't have that kind of feeling that i want it wouldn't have that feeling of being like this standard sitcom uh soap opera you know normal british family well, it's interesting because I, I, one of the questions I was going to ask you that I didn't get a chance to, which was just to kind of ask you to talk about how the, your experience in DV had sort of fed into your aesthetic. So you've, you've answered that question for me. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, but let's, uh, can we just go back to the cannibalism, cannibalism theme? Because it's, yeah. a, it's a key element in a lot of those films that we talked about, like Frightmare and Deathline and, and yeah. the American ones as well, Texas Chainsaw and Hills Have Eyes, etc., uh, it, but in those films, it's always overt. Um, it's their reason to be for the families. But it's, it's, it's there in Mum and Dad, but it's only hinted at, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And I didn't really want to kind of make it a kind of, you know, big kind of uh, cannibal story. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just because I, you know, I was aware that I was, you know, when I first pitched a film, I pitched it as the kind of Heathrow Airport Chainsaw Massacre. So, you know, the, <laughs> the kind of direct influence of Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre was there. But I thought, you know, that I, it, I, I didn't want to make it, you know, this is specifically a kind of, you know, cannibal family. I wanted to make it about a family who, of, you know, who were into, you know, murder and torture and, you know, uh, so it, it was, yeah, for me, it wasn't a kind of, it wasn't a kind of, uh, a, a kind of prime kind of focus for the family. Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the first sort of section of the film where you, after Lena's brought into the house, and you really plunges very suddenly into the depth of depravity, mm. and I, I think it works completely, and understand why you did it, but I think it's an incredibly risky ploy. <laughs> uh, to, to, to yeah. kind of throw us in there and I know that you had a few walkouts uh, when yeah. you screened the film but what I wanted to ask you was did you have any problems because of going so sort of dark so early did you have any problems with with microwave with the funding and did you have any problems later with the BBFC when you came for to get your certificate um I have to say no um we <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, the about twenty minutes in, there's you know, there's a couple of scenes that that, that are really kind of deliberately kind of grim and and, and kind of uh, extreme, and they were in there pretty much from the start. I, I originally wrote a kind of fifteen-page outline, uh, which I then which I then submitted and got through to to the next round, and then and then wrote a script from that. And those elements were kind of always in there. Some kind of microwave. And the producers and the execs kind of knew what was in the film. Um, I don't know if they knew that it would be. I think noticing it in the script and then seeing it on the screen is completely 
you know, it's a completely different thing. I think it was, you know, the, there were a few kind of moments of like, oh, you know, you, you're really going to do that. You're really going to show that close up, are you? Um, but I was never kind of told to um, to get rid of it. I've never, never kind of, you know, asked to cut it or, or, or to cut anything or to, or to change anything in terms of the horror. I, you know, there were, there were other scenes, you know, there were scenes of dialogue or scenes of exposition or... Um, other elements that that I had notes on, but not really that. They were really good in terms of letting me, um, trusting me that that I knew what I was doing in terms of the horror. I mean, part of it was that was that really, apart from Lizzie Frankie, who was my executive producer from Ear Media, I don't think anybody else on the scheme or associated with the scheme was really that into horror. So they kind of trusted me and the producer when we said, Oh no, this, you know, this will go for horror fans. Horror fans will like this. Don't worry about it. I think they, <laughs> you know, they, they really trusted us. Um, as far as the BBFC goes, I think they viewed it a few times, but again, there were no kind of suggested cuts. There were no kind of requests for, for cuts to be made. Um, uh, I think that the main problem, not problem, but that, you know, I think you're right in that, in retrospect, it was you know it was quite a risky thing to do because it does um, for some audiences they get to that kind of twenty minute point and and they see what happens and and they don't want to watch anymore. They think if it's all going to be like this, I can't I can't watch it. You know, so in you know previously I've spoken to people who've uh, you know asked to watch a film and said, look, you know, if you can get through the first twenty minutes, then you'll be you know <laughs> you kind of be okay. It doesn't you know it'll kind of even off after that in in terms of like the horror, you'll you'll be all right. But but yeah, I've had a few kind of experiences of, of people really finding it you know finding it too much. But it was a deliberate thing. You know, it's a kind of I wanted it. You know, I wanted there to be. I was trying to make a film that that I would watch. I was trying to make a film that that would pop up on kind of, you know, late night cable TV in, you know, in 20 years time and people would be watching it and going, what the hell is this thing? You know, and, oh, it's that, that film where that thing happens. You know, I, I wanted to have moments like that. It was almost a kind of deliberate thing to kind of, you know, to have a kind of, uh, you know, not some notoriety. It wasn't done for, for its own sake. There's a kind of, you know, there's in-story reasons for, for, for everything that happens, but these kind of spikes where something really, really horrible happens then you've got the potential for that to happen throughout the rest of the film. You don't need to show it throughout the rest of the film because there's always the potential there. The audience know that you're willing to go there, which means that you don't have to go there. I think it also points out the... It sort of heightens the satire as well um, because, um, you know, the pretense of playing at being a family after what we've seen... Just becomes ludicrous, doesn't it? it, it oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, that's the idea. Is, is, is you know that we had this kind of thing of you know the whole film should be about you know horror bleeding into the domestic and the domestic bleeding into the horror. So you'd have these kind of moments where you know during a torture scene somebody would come in with a cup of tea and some biscuits, and then you know, <laughs> during a breakfast scene there'd be like hardcore porn playing on the TV and somebody bringing you know severed body parts through the kitchen, yeah. and everybody everybody would just treat you know, each of those incidences is normal, you know, that it would just be, this is, this is normal. This is just, you know, how we are. So, uh, so yeah, it was, yeah, it does, it does really kind of, like I say, I think having it early on does kind of set up the rest of the film really. I mean, it culminates in Christmas, doesn't it? You know, the, yeah. the typical <laughs> British family Christmas, which is, as you say, the a total combination of horror and domesticity. 
Yeah, I mean that's where that's where it all kind of meshes together in you know, a real kind of you know that's where the horror and you know really really bleeds into the into the domestic and it's yeah I mean I guess I wanted to have one of those kind of uh, set piece scenes that wasn't kind of around the dinner table or wasn't a kind of you know and and Christmas seemed a real you know Christmas is all about family it's one of the things you're always told Christmas is about family and mm. I think especially when you're a teenager I think kind of family Christmases can seem a bit mature because you know you kind of trapped in the house with with your family and you really want to be out with your mates and you know dad's getting a bit too pissed on sherry and you know and it all gets kind of a bit emotional so it's just kind of taking that kind of feeling and just sort of really really amping it up um to a very very extreme level there are times in that christmas scene where it it reminds you very much of a sort of like the royal family christmas special um, because you know perry looks a lot like ricky tomlinson doesn't he and it's yeah, the, the, like there's so, sort of elements of that as well. Yeah, and like I say, I don't mind those kind of influences being in there because they're they're just you know they're they're kind of inevitable influences just because you you know that's how that's how you see working class families on TV. You know, you see them in sitcoms, you see them in soap operas. So it's kind of you know uh, I I'm you know quite happy for that to kind of kind of feed into it really. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about Mayhem then. So why did you set up Mayhem in the first place? Um. Well, there's three of us who said, oh, uh, myself, Chris Cook, and a friend of ours, Gareth Howell, and we're all kind of horror fans. And I think uh, Chris and Gareth especially used to go to a festival in Manchester called Black Sunday, and um, they were kind of reminiscing about, about going there. And there wasn't really anything... At the time when we started, it was, this was about seven years ago, I guess, there wasn't really anything around um, that was kind of equivalent, or weren't many things. Obviously, Fright Fest was around. Yeah. There was a festival in Scotland, Dead by Dawn, um, but there weren't that many kind of local festivals, and there certainly wasn't anything in Nottingham. I guess we just thought um, that we'd like to set something up that we would like to go to. It's, you know, we, it was nothing kind of more kind of involved than that, really. We, I think the initial idea was to do something like an all-nighter. We went to a Broadway cinema in Nottingham and suggested that, and they said no. So we said, oh, okay, can we do something just in the evening then? And it just started off as a one, you know, one-off kind of screening of shorts, and then sort of year on year, it kind of is, is kind of grown and grown. But it just comes out of us being kind of horror film fans and wanting to, you know, wanting to have something that um, where we can kind of show horror films and get, you know, and get fans together and yeah, and get guests across as well. I mean, that's one of the things that we like to do is to get filmmakers, writers, and directors across to the festival and kind of present the films. Um, so that yeah, that was a real motivation behind it, which is being horror film fans and wanting to wanting to have an event that we ourselves would like to go to. So, what's on the lineup for this year? Okay, well, this year <clears throat> we've got um, a whole slew of kind of new films. We've got um, uh, Sightseers um, by Ben Wheatley, mm-hmm. um, and we've got Grabbers by John Wright, um, both of whom that hopefully are going to come to the festival and introduce their films. We've got. Uh, film called Guinea Pigs by Ian Clark, which is another British film. Um, the Casebook of Eddie Brewer, which is a film from Birmingham uh, about a paranormal investigator. We've got that. We've got some um, American Mary uh, by the Soska Twins, which just played Fright Fest to, to really good reviews. Uh, God, I'm just trying to think. We've got uh, Ray Bees, first Israeli horror film. Oh, yeah. Um, first Israeli horror film. Yeah. I, I haven't ver- verified that, but I, I you know, <laughs> take their word on it. Uh, we've got a couple of archive screenings. We've got the we're showing the Shining in the in the kind of um, elongated cut, and we're showing Altered States as well by uh, Ken Russell. Um, we've got uh, and we're showing Dead Mind as well. We're showing the yeah my film, which is uh, 
I guess one of the perks of running the festival is you, <laughs> you get to show stuff. <laughs> yeah. It would be rude not to. So should yeah. we should we should we it move on? So that's the thing. I mean, it, it does feel a bit weird showing it because you know I I have to curate the festival, but it'd also be weird not to show it because I'd spend the whole weekend with people saying, "Why aren't you showing your film here? You know, isn't it out?" Or yeah. So so yeah. Well, let, let's move on to Dead Mind then. Um, it, at first, it seems like quite a quite a change from Mum and Dad. You know, a bigger budget. It's set in Southeast Asia. Does it feel like a big departure for you, or is it a, a continuation of your themes and preoccupations? Um, no, it kind of feels it kind of feels like a departure because I I didn't originate the script. The script came to me. The producer came to me and had. Um, uh, had a script that they'd had a couple of drafts done on, and they were looking for a director to take it on. And so I kind of took it on, did uh, did a kind of rewrite of the script and, and tried to kind of make it into... Partially it, it was to try and kind of um, fit it into the budget that they were, the, you know, that they had secured. And the script that I read was, was kind of too big for the budget. I guess they were looking at me as someone who'd come from a very kind of... <laughs> Yeah, who come from managing low budgets, so wouldn't be kind of too freaked out, uh, you know, having to kind of compress things down. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it, yeah, I agree. It doesn't seem like a kind of natural step in a way on from mum and dad, and it was a bit kind of out of the blue, getting, you know, getting getting involved with it. But um, it was something, you know. Again, I'm a kind of, you know, like I say I'm a big kind of genre fan. It's, it's not that often, whereas a kind of British filmmaker, you get to do. You know, scenes where people are hacking through jungle vines with a machete. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so there's that kind of appeal to it. You know. Are you happy with the film? Would you go back and shoot a, a sequel if you were asked to? Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that, that you know, I think at, at various stages, people, you know, people kind of ask about, oh, you know, would you like, you know, could you do a sequel? Would you like to do a sequel? And I was kind of like, well, yeah, I think, you know, there, there's the, there's definitely the potential there to do that. And so, you know, story-wise, there's the potential there to do that. Um, I think if I went out to Indonesia again to do it, I, you know, you know, it's very challenging the, the the shoot and the whole kind of setup. And I, I think, you know, knowing what I know now about about working out there and working in, in that particular environment, I'd be a lot kind of uh, more prepared, you know. Yeah. Uh, in terms of going out there and doing it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. So what's next, uh, what's next up for you? I know you've, you've had a few scripts in development, uh, both in, in the horror genre and outside of it. What, what's the next uh, on the slate? Well, I'm kind of, uh, I'm hopefully kind of uh, working on a segment of a British anthology film that, um, that should be hopefully uh, done at the end of next end of this year start of next year um and i think that you know the producers are hoping to go out for uh kind of next summer really <clears throat> to get it finished for next summer so so there's that on the cards and then there's a couple of other scripts that i'm working on and one's one's more uh one's a kind of sci-fi film it's very much kind of you know I'd, I'd need a kind of definite kind of budget for and it's kind of a sort of you know dream project if you know somebody offered me kind of millions of dollars or millions of pounds to make it and another one is more of kind of um, dark kind of psychological drama that's that's very that's more kind of doable on a low budget. It's, it's kind of you know in a way I'm trying, you know trying to kind of uh, you know cover all the bases at the moment in terms of you know potentially where you know what I could go in, you know and and look at what you know what's 
available to me. Um, there's also another film that I, I co-scripted called Gozo that should be out next year that was um, uh, co-written and directed by a woman called Miranda Bowen. Um, and that's a kind of psychological drama set on an island uh, next to Malta. And that's, that's kind of, you know, different again from Mum and Dad and different again from Dead Mind. It's, it's very much more of a psychological thing. Um, and that should be out next year as well. I think that's a 2013 release as well. So, so yeah, I've got a few things kind of uh, on the cards and, and uh, you know, just uh, looking to develop more. Well, that all sounds really positive. Uh, just one last question, though. I know that you've been involved in with Derby University on this new MA in horror and, and transgression. Yeah. So w- what's your actual involvement with that course? Well, I mean, I, I kind of, uh, I know Tom Craig, who's, uh, you know, who, who runs the course, and he, um, uh, I've been over to Derby a couple of times to, to talk to the students. Um, and at the moment, I, I'm kind of not involved directly with it, but partially that's because I've been away in Indonesia for... <laughs> yeah. For sort of you know on off for, for six months, so I'm hoping to kind of get back involved with it kind of next year. So, but I guess my involvement would only be as kind of you know sort of guest lecturer and you know just on, on that kind of level rather than any more kind of uh, formal involvement. But she's still my flesh and blood. Whereas you, you're nothing. You're not even human. You're just. We got a saying in this family. A pet's not for life. It's just for Christmas. <laughs> Dead Mind gets its UK release early next year. This year's Mayhem Horror Festival runs from October the 31st to November the 4th at the Broadway Cinema in Nottingham. And watch out for my coverage of Mayhem Horror Fest in Starburst magazine. Friday Night Frights. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay Stay scared. scared.